everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Skip. And I'm Nick. And today we are thrilled to have Larry Arn with us. Dr. Arn is president of Hillsdale College, where he's also a professor of politics and history. He received his bachelor's degree from Arkansas State University and his master's and PhD in government from the Claremont Graduate School. He has also studied at Oxford University, where he served as director of research for Sir Martin Gilbert, the official biographer of Winston Churchill. Dr. Arne is also the author of three books, Liberty and Learning, The Evolution of American Education, The Founder's Key, The Divine and Natural Connection Between the Declaration and the Constitution, and What We Risk by Losing It, as well as Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Arne. Pleasure. So to get started, we like to ask all of our guests uh, about this concept of inflection points or a point where you felt you had to pivot or shift something in your personal or professional life. Would you mind sharing one of those points with us today? Yeah, I'll share the one that brought me here uh, and then ultimately to England where I met my wife. Uh, I was in a class at Arkansas State University near where I grew up and there was a professor from Claremont named Jeffrey Wallen and I was compelled to take his class. I tried to get out of it and it was on political philosophy, and I was uh, cross about it, and I was a stroppy kid, and so I argued hard with him for about three weeks. We were reading Plato's Republic, and about the third week, he just beat the devil out of me and conquered me, and I decided, uh, I actually don't know what this thing is that I've majored in politics. So I went to him, and I said, I want to go somewhere to graduate school. He said, you're going to law school. You're all in, and I said, true. He said, but I, I might change my mind. He said, well, you should think hard about that. Eventually, I persuaded him to recommend me here. He told me this was the best. I said, okay, I'm going there. And that's how I got here. That's great. So what took you from, uh, from Claremont here, um, you know, furthering your education um, all the way out to Oxford, to, to, to England, where, as you mentioned, you met your wife, and, uh, you know, you really delved into that research. Um, well, there were two people. Uh, most of my education actually comes from Claremont McKenna College, although I was a graduate student, don't have a degree mm -hmm. from there. And there were two people at Claremont McKenna College who talked about Winston Churchill, Harry Jaffa and Harold Rood. And so I had a high opinion of him. And then I was house-sitting one summer in a house over on Mills Avenue, and I was bitten by a dog, and my hand swelled up, and I was bedridden. And this fellow, whose name is Steve Marnin, taught here for a while at Claremont McKenna, he... Uh, had written his doctoral thesis on Churchill, and there was Churchill books everywhere. And so I sat in the bed, and I started reading them, and I've never stopped. Hmm. I got a Rotary Fellowship eventually, and I used it to go to Oxford, and, well, I went to London first, and Harry Jaffa, you know, great professor from here, dead now, he knew Martin Gilbert. And so he didn't know him very well, but he knew him. In fact, I might have never met him in person, but they corresponded. And so he asked Martin Gilbert to meet me, and I, did, I was so young and green, I didn't know that that was such a big deal. But he, we got on. I had read his books, and authors really like that. So he offered me a job. <laughs> and so the next thing you know, I'm working for him. And two weeks later, he hired my wife. <laughs> so that's just a fascinating uh, piece about your life is this, this, this uh, professional relationship with, with Martin Gilbert and the work you did there. So can you just walk us through a little bit? Obviously, you said he offered you a job. Can you talk about how you ended up becoming his director for research for this completely um, 
massively important uh, book that he ended up writing, the official biography yeah. of Winston Churchill. And, you know, he didn't live to finish all the document volumes, and so we, I am finishing them at Hillsdale College. They're almost done. I'm writing the preface soon to the last document volume. Started in 1962. But um, you guys are young and ambitious, and, uh, and uh, you'll find out how things work. First of all, I was the director of research. There was just like three of us. <laughs> and uh, I came in one morning. He had developed confidence in me. At first, he told me every little thing to do and watched everything I did. My first job was cutting pieces of paper to the correct size. And I was good at that, so I got promoted to something else, sorting paper by date. So anyway, he, uh, he I got to where he would, we got to where he would send me off to research on my own and interview people even. And one morning he came in and he said, I came in and he said, good morning. He said, do you want a coffee? That meant he wanted one. So, <laughs> so I made us both coffee and we sat down and he said, well, I'm glad you're here this morning, he said, because... I'm going to appoint you director of research. And I said, something has gone wrong. And he said, yes, and you have to fix it. <laughs> That's how I got that job. Well, excellent. And your talk tonight is about uh, Churchill and education specifically. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, both Skip and I are in a, in a seminar on uh, Winston Churchill, taught by Professor Jonathan Petropoulos. And one of the things that we've been discussing as we move through Churchill's life is, um, you know, the importance that he he placed on his education. And um, I mean, it's interesting in the sense that he went to, um, you know, kind of some of those elite grade schools, um, but didn't pursue uh, the formal university education. He went to Sandhurst, the military academy instead, but, you know, kept up this um, reading regimen and, and was self-educated in many ways. And so I was just curious, um, you know, how, how do you think we can continue to educate ourselves, you know, long after we have left the classroom? And, mm -hmm. and you know, how did that fit into Churchill's life as <laughs> yeah, well? Yeah, read a lot of Winston Churchill. Yeah. Uh, he, he, uh, he, the reason he didn't go to university was because he didn't have very good marks in school mm -hmm. and because he wasn't interested. He sort of found his only schooling happiness at Sandhurst, where he was training for the cavalry, and he just loved riding horses around and practicing shooting people. And, uh, you know, he eventually proved very good at that. And uh, so he was just happy as he could be. And then he writes a charming thing about it in my early life. Uh, he'd reached his 22nd year when the desire of learning came upon him. And so I think that, and he did, he lists, I'm going to talk about it sometime, he lists the books that he read and what he thought he learned from them. Uh, Churchill, uh, uh, if people could get a sense of him today, he would be delightful because he was very good at talking and writing about himself in a self-deprecating way that's humorous. So he always swore that he didn't have much education, but he read these great books, and uh, he, he developed an idea of going to university and then he met some people from university, cousins of his and some others from Oxford, and they were kind of nihilist. And they were playing like word games and mind games all the time, and he didn't like that. And so that's one reason why he didn't pursue that ambition. And then, of course, he got swept up in war and then politics. I think one of the one of the things when you're, when you're talking about in his 22nd year, he's he's in India and he's he's reading a lot of these books, like the you know the Gibbon History of Rome, all these all these books like that. 
the sources he was reading were maybe more popular kind of history. They might, might not have been the most academic. I'm wondering how you think that maybe impacted his own views of, of the academy and, and maybe of, of education as well. Well, I think that uh, the academic world is much more, in the humanities at least, is much more specialized now than it was back then. And so, like, there was a, a man, a great historian, toward the end of Churchill's life named Rouse. And reading him, you know, the early 20th century historian, reading him is not very different from reading Macaulay and Gibbon. Uh, so there's that, but uh, when Churchill got ready to write, especially uh, Marlborough, his life and times, he employed a very bright young man named Morris Ashley, who was a very prime, excellent graduate of Oxford in history, and he helped Churchill. And uh, Churchill didn't ever pretend to write authoritative academic history, although I think his books are superb and revealing, but not in the technical historian way. And he doesn't want that. He, that's not what he was after. Hmm. Hmm. And then I guess, I mean, perhaps this connects to a, a, a larger debate in um, the field of history. Um, and since this is something that I'm sure you had to deal with firsthand, I mean, the idea that, you know, history is, is narrative, um, you know, no matter how academic you're trying to be, you ultimately have to decide which facts to include, which anecdotes you're going to touch on when you're writing. And that selection alone um, mm -hmm. creates yeah. its own image. And I was just wondering, as somebody, you know, who um, did all this research, what did that process look like when you're um, kind of, I mean, you, you can't fit it all, right? So you have to, you have to choose. Well, I, it's, I had a really marvelous opportunity because Martin Gilbert is one of the greatest modern historians, and uh, he was an interesting guy. He, he studied with Alan Taylor, an early revisionist historian at Modlin College, and uh, Alan Taylor told him, don't worry about all these documents. They've been explored by now. And he told him, the story of Churchill has already been told. And he told him, I don't understand about these maps that you draw, which he published many volumes of historical atlases. And so those are his three great pieces of advice from his teacher, and he didn't take any of them. And, and here's how he did it. He did it, and, you know, he, he has the greatest capacity for this that I have ever seen. I, just awesome. He took every document that could be found, every single one. And in the case of Churchill, that's massive. That's a huge amount of stuff. And not just in Churchill's archive, everywhere, India, wherever you got to go, find it. And then you put it in chronological order, and that's why I had to cut pieces of paper to the correct size, because they all had to be the same size. And if it was like an oversized piece of paper, you had to cut it up into parts and, and put it in there so that he, he, he could page through them and read the story as it unfolded. And then he thought his, his task was to... Uh, tell the story as it was. Uh, he, he was very strict about that. He, he used to look at me and say, uh, I have a good memory and you have a good memory, and we do not rely upon our memories. And, and, uh, and uh, if you wrote perhaps on something, he would circle it and say, perhaps not. <laughs> <laughs> and he liked to say, uh, in the writing of 19th and 20th century history, the word perhaps is not in the vocabulary. No. 
So I, you know, it's uh, there. There partly it's a, a capacity and a skill because he just had a tremendous capacity to organize and absorb and render information, and it's also a rectitude. He didn't think he, and you know, it's it's odd because uh, I once I once saw him give the annual King's College London War Lectures on Churchill. Penny and I, my wife and I, went with him. We were still working for him. And he was nervous about it because the great historians of the time, including his teacher, Alan Taylor, came. Brian Bond and D.C. Watt and all those great guys from back then. And he was nervous about it. And uh, Brian Bond introduced him by encouraging him to take the microscope off his eye and speak at large. And Martin Gilbert's first words were, the microscope is stuck to my eye. Mm-hmm. And, and then he, but later, Brian Bond asked him a sort of hostile question about something that Brian Bond had written a book about. And Martin Gilbert, and I, I don't know when Martin Gilbert ever read the secondary literature, but he knew it all. I never saw him reading it. But he said, yes, you know, you write that in your book. But in fact, if you look on X date, the direct opposite of that was said by, so he corrected, you know. I once watched him over in, at, at a, in a lecture hall in Pomona College where he, he would, after we left in 1980, you know, I stayed, remained close to him until he died. And he would come here every year to Claremont. And he eventually ended up a distinguished fellow of Hillsdale College, came there every year. Well, this fella asked him, he gave a question, uh, he gave a lecture about the Holocaust, and this fella stood up and said, you know, I saw myself something about Auschwitz. And I said, wow, an eyewitness. And Martin Gilbert said, I know who you are, sir. And called his name and said, you know what you saw that was put there by the Germans to deceive? And as we were walking out, I said to Martin Gilbert, I said, man, you've just corrected an eyewitness. (laughs) So that's a, and see, those are the kind of things that he treasured. He, he, he loved Churchill. He, he got interested in Churchill. Martin Gilbert was a Jew, and he found out that Churchill was a protector of everybody, including the Jews. Mm-hmm. And so he, and you know, this conservative, stiff, you know, guy, and he just, uh, and then he got a job where he got a job. He was a research assistant on the, on the Churchill biography before I was. And, uh, and he, he, he did love Churchill, but his point was to, Tell the story exactly as it was. And were there any any points in obviously you serving as a research research director? You're reading through this, all of this, the voluminous works and and all these primary sources. Would you ever feel a that you were maybe getting too close to the subject and maybe you couldn't see Churchill objectively? And then b did you ever disagree with Martin Gilbert at all or anything? The inclusion of anything or exclusion of anything that did end up making the final work? Well. Uh, so yeah, but sure. You know, I I I uh, disagreed about many things with Martin Gilbert over the many many years I knew him and loved him all that time. But you couldn't really have a disagreement with him about a historical question because he, he we'd just look it up. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you know, I I would say this doesn't work as an account of this thing. Sometimes you know, and he would, and sometimes you know, he's just trying to get it right. Uh, did I feel too close to it? Well, first of all, the only the only remedy for that, you know, if you think, you know, Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas both write 
This alone is denied even to God, to make what has been not to have been. It's kind of sort of a way of saying the law and contradiction can't be repealed even by the divine. So that means that when you're looking for it, you should look for the answer. And of course, if you think you're too close to it, how can that be? You know, I mean, first of all, there's so much. I didn't, Harry Jaffa, you know, another great teacher of mine here at Claremont McKenna, he gave the advice I regarded as incredibly wise. I urge you young men to take it. He said, uh, life is too short to read a hundred great books and know them. Pick three, or better pick one. Hmm. And then pick one person or one thing in history and try to know everything about that too. Well, I was so young and I, for some reason, Churchill just sang to me when I started reading him. I didn't realize how difficult that would be because he, you know, the guy wrote nearly 50 books. And, you know, Lincoln was in politics for about nine years, you know, gave maybe 20 really major speeches. It just goes on and on with Churchill. How do you get too close to it? How do you just get through it? That's hard enough. So, yeah, I, I don't worry about that too much. And I also think that uh, the way history is written today, with the exception of the really great biography, I was with Andrew Roberts yesterday, this morning even, and uh, the way history is written today, historians write a lot about each other. And... Uh, and uh, you know, and that, and that, you know, they weren't there. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. it, uh, you know, his theory of this and his account of that, and I footnote that, and then I might differ with that because somebody else, you know, so it's historiography. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I think that uh, you want to get as near the thing mm. as you can get. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, you may have seen it in The New Yorker just recently. There was an article, I believe, titled The Decline of Historical Thinking. And it was about how the history major is, you know, the fastest declining mm. subject of study um, among pretty much any group you can imagine. Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of in a renaissance in a lot of our nation's elite um, you know, higher education institutions, um, a lot of the Ivies and stuff. Uh, history is one of the most popular majors. And so I guess my question to you is, uh, what do you see as, as the value of studying history in the modern era? And, and why is it in, important that, that that tradition is not lost? Mm. I, I'll comment. History is the largest major at Hillsdale College. <laughs> um, the point is, what do we mean by modern era? And how can we know? Because it's really hard to study the present. It just lasts a second. And the future is unknown. And so if you want to learn about things, about human things, you have to look at the record of the past. And like the, the, the expression in modern conditions, well, something must be distinctive about them to make them called that. Mm -hmm. Well, then you'll need to know what some other thing was like to compare it to. And so there's this, you know... Uh, the old teaching about this from Herodotus forward, the first historian till recently, the old idea was history is the cheap way and the fast way to get experience. Mm -hmm. Read stories of, you know, because you, you, if I'm any judge of character, and you guys are right in my specialty group, you guys are ambitious. You want to do things. And smart, you wouldn't be here if you weren't. Well, 
read about people who did. And because, you know, when you're young, and, you know, you, my own life as a witness, you'll be old before you know it. But uh, when you're young, uh, like the reason it's so intoxicating to be what you are, that's why I love people like you, is that you can do anything I can do. But if it's an important thing, you've never done it before. <laughs> and there's something fun about that, right, and exciting about that. And on the other hand, what if you could learn about it without having to do it? History. So unfortunately, we only have time for one more question, but it's a question we ask all of our guests. Um, and the question is, what is your personal definition of success, and what advice would you give students and listeners to this podcast um, in defining success for themselves? I learned my definition of success from Aristotle, from the great Harry Jaffa at Claremont McKenna College. And I think it is actually the only one. Uh, uh, I'll put it in terms of my daughter, our older child, who wrote her doctoral thesis on Aristotle. And when she was a little girl, she would kick her feet sometimes and say, why can't you let me be happy? And I would say, you're too young to be happy. You have to learn to be good. <laughs> and that, that means that what the virtues are is the virtue of any being, any living or dead. Mm -hmm. The virtue of the being is it being fully itself. What is it to be fully a human being? It is to be courageous and moderate and just and wise. One should seek those things. Great. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Dr. Arn for joining us and to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>